0: All right, we are in the uh, Corinthian letters. We're in the second letter in chapter 10. Uh, The first letter was a rebuke uh, of the Corinthians because of gross sin in their midst, and they're dividing up the body over their gifts and ministers. Paul reminds them that they're to be part of unity, not uniformity, and that that one body needs the differences. Uh, So that they can be used for the common good. In this second letter, he's seeking to comfort them and reconnect the fellowship uh, within the truth. And he's reminding them that there is suffering in this life. But the life to come will be more glorious as the new covenant is more glorious. Here we share in the sufferings of Christ, but there we will share in his glory. The difference between then and now uh, is the resurrected body. So here, while we are in this body, we walk by faith and not by sight. We have to keep our attention on unseen things of God's promises, not the visible temporal things of this life. So we just completed the two chapters about the Gentile church's offerings for the Jewish poor in Jerusalem, those who had accepted Jesus as Messiah and were uh, in, in need. Uh, he talks about this being an obligation of the Gentiles Uh, who have benefited from the blessing of the Jewish people, but also the recognition that the body is both Jew and Gentile, ultimately bringing glory and praise to God. He reminds them of their commitment, though it is voluntary, and he says that the blessing of God is commensurate with their willingness to give. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. So now he's going to address a related issue. The Corinthians seem to be judging ministry, and particularly Paul, um, based on personalities and rhetoric and so-called results. Uh, But many of these people are false ministers that we're going to see in next week's um, sermon. Uh, In the final section of the book here, uh, from 10 on, he's going to appeal to them to think of things and look at things differently in this regard. Because he's concerned that they'll be misled by the false apostles and ministers if they are measuring what appears to be the gospel and blessing of God, but is not. So we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, and the first two verses read this way. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. It's an interesting uh, statement by Paul. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of Moses. There's a biblical leadership style that is not... Uh, leadership style as we see it in uh, in the American church. In fact, right now, the hot topic in a lot of places is how to be a leader, uh, leadership, biblical leadership. And in most cases, they're not talking about biblical leadership. They're talking about uh, business leadership with Bible verses on it. Uh, and it's it's this kind of, you know, bring your agenda and do that... Moses was not addressing his own agenda nor his own vision. He wasn't using his talents to figure out which way can I lead this people. He was given a responsibility by God and he was humbled by it and therefore there was a meekness about him in that process. Uh, Jesus also did not think it equality with God, something to be demonstrated, but humbled himself. And then being fashioned like a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death, that God would exalt him. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And then Paul also apparently, when he is with the Corinthians, is not very sophisticated. He's not very uh, uh, great at his rhetoric. He's not really good where people go, oh, you got to come hear this guy. Right? and he said, I do this because I don't want you to be following me. You follow me as I follow Christ. And so there is, there is this leadership of servanthood, this leadership of uh, acting in biblical ways that should be seen, but, but often isn't seen because people are looking at leadership in other areas and expect the church leadership to be the same. So he says, don't make me, when I come, have to be that way. I, I write pretty strongly to you. I've, I'm letting you have it with the letters. Uh, when we get together, let's just, let's just you know, be together uh, as people. So then uh, he clarifies this in 1 Corinthians when he had talked about it. So I, I want to uh, go back. They, they would be aware, certainly, of, of his first letter. And he is explaining in that letter what he did. He's in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling... And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We don't see that a lot anymore. We really do have more people who think by apologetics and by the right rhetoric, they can convince people of the truth of the gospel. I don't believe any apologetics or rhetoric ever convinces anybody. It is the Word of God and the Spirit of God that changes the heart. So we have to be faithful to what that message is and not alter the message towards those who we think, if we just alter it a little bit, then they will join. And so uh, he's making it clear that he brought them the power and the message of the Gospel. So back in Second Corinthians chapter 10, we'll look at verses uh, 3 through six, He says, uh, now he has just said there are some who think we're walking according to the flesh. In other words, there are people who think that we're just doing what we're doing the way any person does what they're doing to be successful. So he says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we certainly are in these bodies, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Again, fascinating words. It sounds a little strange, but I want you to catch what he's saying. We, we appear in the flesh, and those who judge us in human terms are therefore wrong. Uh, though we are yet in these bodies, and we have all the weakness of the flesh and the troubled circumstances that he will mention, that does not mean that we are losing the spiritual battle. We're using spiritual weapons that are based on the power of God, which brings down strongholds. And he mentions those. We are bringing down every highly stated idea that is contrary to the real knowledge of God and truth. We are bringing such ideas into obedience to Christ. Now, that's important because we live in a time when an enormous amount of people think that they know God. A lot of people think that they know Christ. A lot of people think they know the faith. And the reality is they are really following these kind of cliched, um, semi-scriptural approaches to the faith that allow you really to continue to uh, live your life in the American lifestyle and in the American way, and be focused on the things of this world and this life, and still have this sense that you are a, a serious person for God. When in reality, that's not the case. Paul's going to talk about that in more detail in chapter 11. But what he says here is that we are pulling down these ideas that get thrown up as if they're high, important concepts of God, but they are not in obedience to Christ. And he then says, we're ready to punish those who continue in their disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, what is he talking about? What he's talking about is that we are being patient because we know that people are struggling. And what we are doing is we're holding back so that we will... Punish those who are disobedient when their disobedience is clear. But while we're waiting to make sure that those who are obedient are finally in a mature obedience. Because otherwise you will condemn some who are just struggling in the faith with those who are rejecting the faith. So how do, how do we uh, address that? Well, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. I spend a lot of time talking about these passages in classes at the university because there's an entire generation of believers who have been taught that it's believe in Jesus, everything is grace, and so go on and live the way you want to live and go after what you want because as long as you've said the magic words and you admit that you've said the magic words, you're going to be okay. Uh, But their lifestyle is scary, uh, to say the least. So in 1 John chapter 3, we have these words. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be but we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, what what John is saying is we're now the children of God. He uses the word children. Doesn't yet appear what we shall be. Paul tells us we will be sons of God. That there will be an adoption at the resurrection. What he means by that is we will be put in our full place. So we are now children, in a sense, being tutored and being prepared for the kingdom to come when we will be in resurrection, and then we will share in the reigning and the glory of God in that context. John says, it doesn't fully appear, but we know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now verse 4, he says, everyone, uh, verse 3, everyone who has this hope, this hope of resurrection and reigning with Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. Now this word pure means to be fully directed towards a goal and unadulterated in that. If we talk about something being pure, we mean that it is single-minded in that sense. So he's saying that the one who has this hope fixes himself on that hope and is doing everything he can to move in that direction. So then he says... In verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Because sin is lawlessness. In other words, there is no law. Boy, that sounds like contemporary Christianity. Now you know he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God appeared for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Then he goes on and talks about Cain. Now, I want you to catch what Paul was saying in the, in the light of what John is saying here. Paul's saying, we're waiting to, to, to punish those who are disobedient as soon as your obedience is clear. John says, the one who's born of God doesn't practice sin. He practices righteousness. Now, if you practice an instrument, let's say you practice the clarinet, okay, you get better at it over time as you're practicing that. If you occasionally pick up a banjo, you don't play it very well. If you practice that banjo, you'll get better at that. So what John is saying... This is a terrible example, but you know, it's the way I, it is. Those who are born of God play the clarinet. And those who are children of the devil play the banjo. And what he means is, what are you practicing? He's not talking about how well you do it. We know that if you continue, you will get better at something. He's talking about the direction of your life. Those who are practicing obedience to Christ and trying to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord towards the kingdom and the things that will be in the kingdom those are the children of God and those who are practicing the things of the world and the things of sin and even if they profess themselves to be believers they're not and so once that road becomes established Paul says we'll know and we will, dis- we will punish those who are disobedient and we will Um, uh, know then who is being obedient. This this is really a common theme throughout the New Testament that almost is uh, missing in most Christians' understanding. So I want to go back to uh, Corinthians 10. So he says, The life of the believer is a struggle towards obedience to God through Christ within community, but the process is messy And we have to be patient to know who is in disobedience and who is actually a follower of Messiah. We all know the scriptures. We all know that God's people from time to time have messed up big time. The issue is, do they run in that direction? Do they practice that direction? Or when they trip up, do they turn and then move back into obedience to Christ? If they are turning back to obedience of Christ, then they are to be forgiven and restored. That's what Paul had said in the context of the first Corinthian letter. So, what we are, we are told here is that they are, Paul saying, don't make me come As I have come in these letters where I have to be harsh with you. Let me just come and be meek and gentle with you. As Christ is meek and gentle. So we pick it up at chapter 10 verse 7. He said, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's. Let him consider this again within himself. That just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. He says, let such a person uh, consider this, that what we are in words by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, which within the measure of the sphere, which God apportioned to us a measure to reach even as far as you. Now, I know that's a little confusing. Okay? So let me kind of bring this out. Okay? Paul says there are two ways of judging. One is to judge external comparison and measuring by comparison. That's the way we do it generally in our culture. Okay? Who's more successful, who's more popular, who's more wealthy, who's doing... That's the external judging that Paul says, this is not good. When people do that, when they compare themselves to others to kind of find out where they are in the spot, which is the way we do everything in this world, Paul says, they're missing the point. They are not wise. They are doing this without understanding. What he says we're doing is we're measuring ourselves by the sphere of the measurement that God has given us. And that measurement that God has given us is not about judging ourselves to someone else. Because our task that's given to us is a specific task given by God. So his, his, his sphere that he's talking about is this spiritual sphere versus the external sphere. And so he says, we're not doing what they do. We're not boasting there. He says, now in addition, and I'll, I'll pick this up, verse 14. We are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you with the gospel not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Again, it sounds like, what what is he talking about? Paul's very concerned That they are judging ministries. Remember what they had done in one Corinthians. I'm a Paul. I'm a Apollos. I'm a Cephas. They are they're gearing themselves to. I like this guy. I like what he does. He draws a crowd. That's it. And Paul says, "This is foolishness." That's the way the world judges. We are to judge based on what God has called a person to do and how well they are doing what they're called to do, not the results, because the results are not coming from them. If they are coming from them, then they are worldly results and they won't last. But if there's real results, eternal results, they will come from God. So again, he's pointing back to 1 Corinthians. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a passage we all know, and we often use it in reference to, um, we, we often use it in reference to all believers, but it, Paul's really using it in reference to those who are ministers. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, uh, verse 4, he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? You're judging as men do. Who then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted. Paul was there first. Apollos watered. And God was causing the growth. It wasn't Paul, and it wasn't Apollos. If there is real growth, it is God doing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants... "...nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth." Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, even though they're doing different things. "...and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, you are God's building." According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation, with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, that's the day of judgment... Uh, Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, Paul's making it really clear that ministers have to be careful that they are doing what God's told them to do what God's told us to do and not what they think will be successful. Because you cannot build inappropriately in the kingdom of God the judgment of God will burn that out and it will be lost. doesn't mean they will be lost. We have a lot of people who are saved and in the ministry and will have very little to show for their ministry. Because their ministry is mostly wood, hay and straw. And we have some people who aren't are well known, but they are faithful, and they are faithful to the word, and they are doing what the word says, and they are building in other people's lives with silver and gold and precious stone, and fire will simply refine that, not destroy that. And so, Paul then says, I came to you first, and I don't want to build on someone else's work, and so I'm going from you to other places where no one has ministered, so that I can lay that foundation. And he's saying here that people better be careful what they do in that foundation. Someone comes in and says, well, Paul, you know, he's a little... I've really got the truth of God. Paul's worried that they're going to be seduced away from the simplicity that's in Christ. We'll talk about that in in the next text. But the minister is judged by God... uh, who is at work in all of this, and the servants will be tested with regard to their work. So our judgment is based on our faithfulness to God and His Word, not the so-called success that is that is going on. I am constantly being asked if I know somebody. They're the latest, greatest... Uh, Pastor who's built some kind of mega church or something and has an incredible ministry, or he's written the last series of books and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and I'll say, Well, what does he say? Oh, he's just great. He's great. And they don't know what he said. And then I'll look at some of this stuff he's saying, and it's just garbage. And it's amazing how popular garbage is in the Christian community. They are not being faithful to God. And they are drawing away disciples into their nonsense, which wastes the ministry to those people that is being done. So, uh, in, uh, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10 again, we get to uh, the last two verses. I'm not as quite done as you think, but it'll be alright. So Paul says in verse 17, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends, whom the Lord approves. Now, Paul's quoting from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He only gives us one little phrase, but he is assuming that people know this text. Uh, so since i 'm not assuming that let 's look at that text nine twenty three and twenty four thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this that he understands. And knows me that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, says the Lord. So you see what Paul's saying? The one who should be boasting and where we should be looking is on those who are teaching mercy and righteousness. And uh, justice within the community of faith as a sign to the world of who God is. Not how many people can we gather into a room and how many books can we sell and how many people know our name. I am uh, just always have been amazed at the ministry of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham is probably one of the best known uh, ministers uh in in my generation. And yet, I suspect that at the judgment, there will be people who receive a much greater reward than Graham. And I think Graham will receive a great reward. There will be some who are going to receive a much greater reward and we won't know who they are until they receive the reward. Because there are faithful, faithful people of God quietly, quietly, serving one another in churches and congregations and on doorsteps and in streets and in hospitals and in places who are not worried about their reputation and not worried about comparing themselves with others. They're simply wanting to please their Lord and they're being faithful. And that's the judgment of God. Faithful to His word and to His reputation, not faithful to our ministry and our reputation. And so he basically says, and Jeremiah, believe me, Jeremiah knew a lot of false prophets. Because all through Jeremiah, God is saying, these people say that I sent them and I didn't send them. Don't listen to them. They are not speaking my words. Uh, Jeremiah's ministry was rejected as Paul was being complained about. In this context. So he's using Jeremiah to say. If you really judge me by spiritual faithfulness. You will see that I am not behind these guys. But even that comparison is absurd. We don't to our own master we stand uh, or fall. So he says in the end of this passage then. uh, That the Lord ultimately will reward or punish his servants. He's the judge. And you must consider his standards of judgment, not man's. Uh, The one who knows the Lord is much greater than the one who claims to know the Lord because he has a greater place or effectiveness. Our real approval comes from the Lord. I'm always reminded of that passage about Enoch. Enoch in the genealogy. In a genealogy where people lived almost a thousand years Enoch only lived 364 years. Scripture says, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Everybody else in there has got a big reputation in the world. Enoch had no big reputation in the world but he had an incredible reputation with God. We need to not be fearing man we need to not be comparing ourselves to others in the flesh. We need to be comparing ourselves to the Word of God and with meekness and with gentleness, with patience and with endurance, be following the Lord. We have to know the truth and who is of the truth and who is promoting themselves and being merchandisers of the Word of God. And Paul's going to jump onto that very quickly. Because he is, he's worried that the Corinthians, in all of their excitement about everybody who comes in with a new message and a new wrinkle on the gospel, uh, might lead them away as Satan led uh, Eve away. And they will miss the calling and the, and the meaning that he has for them. And that's chapter 11. I don't want to start that yet. We'll do that next time. Let's uh, pray.